We're back in 1 Peter, and the central idea of this wonderful book and the reason why we're walking through this as a church is essentially this reason. To be a Christian means that you're in exile. I don't care what period of church history you were born into, I don't care what country you're in, if you're a Christian, you're in exile. And some of you experienced that over the holidays. You gathered with family and friends, and the reality is you drove away from an event together, maybe a meal, and just thought, you know what? Like, we're just, we're just not like these people. Or maybe a conversation happened around the dinner table, and someone was sharing their views on something, and it was an opportunity for you to speak into it, and you wondered, is this the moment for me to go there? Or maybe you went there, and it didn't go well, and you look back on that thinking, I just don't like that tension. You need to know that throughout the history of the church, Christians have always been in a position when they have been called to be exiles. When the culture around them put pressure on them to conform and where the followers of Jesus have said, look, we have some beliefs that define who we are. Beliefs that sometimes make it awkward. Beliefs that we have an authoritative word, the Bible, that tells us what we're to believe that we believe that ethics comes out of the Bible, not out of our own understanding of our own morality, including sexual ethics. We, we believe that Jesus is the only way that people can truly be saved, and we believe that it's the responsibility of Christians to share the gospel and to lovingly invite people, yes, even to convert them to become followers of Jesus. Friends, those particular truths have often, throughout the history of the world, set Christianity against its culture, have set Parents against their children have sent children against their parents, have set friends against friends. To be a Christian is to be in exile. So we're coming now to chapter two of 1 Peter. The aim of this series has been to remind you that we have always been exiles so that when something happens to you that reminds you that you're in exile, that it doesn't surprise you. That you're reminded that Christianity has always been weird. Now I don't want you to be weird. Well, let me rephrase that for some of you. I don't want some of you to be weirder than you already are, but what I, don't, what, what I want you to realize is that Christianity, by definition, is strange to the world. Secondly, the reason we're in 1 Peter is that I want you to see that the shifting nature of our culture is something that we can embrace as an opportunity, not something that we should fear. And third, in the midst of all the things that are happening in our culture, in the midst of all the things the Bible is calling us to, I want to invite you to think, what kind of walk with Jesus should I have during this season? I want to invite you to pursue a deeper level of godliness and then also to consider the value of what it means to be the church together. You see, 1 Peter was written for people who were becoming exiles even though they didn't move. Their displacement wasn't geographic. It was spiritual and cultural. And Peter writes to them with this sense of gospel hope so that they could come to terms with who they really were, and then Peter could help these people know how to live. You see, in that respect, 
any kind of pressure that comes on exiles is actually a really positive thing. Because when that pressure comes, it causes the followers of Jesus to come to terms with whether or not they really believe what they say they believe. I mean, let's be honest. You can say whatever you want to believe in this room, but when it really becomes costly is around the dinner table with family, in discussions in your fraternity, in the midst of a college classroom environment when you have to write a paper on your beliefs. It becomes street level in the marketplace and, and when you're trying to figure out how to navigate through various policies at work. And I would tell you that that sort of pressure is really good for Christianity. In fact, I think the reverse is very unhelpful. When Christianity goes undercover, when it becomes too easy to be a follower of Jesus, that's when Christianity, cultural Christianity, gets really shallow, really thin, and often not very biblical. So when Peter writes about what it means to be in exile, he is helping us to understand what it really means to follow Jesus. So if you're not a follower of Jesus today, I wanna show you what it means to follow Jesus with the hope that you would put your trust and faith in Christ. If you already are a follower of Jesus, I want you to listen today about what does 1 Peter chapter 2 say in regards to how I should live. Let me remind you where we've been. Take your Bible and let's look at 1 Peter chapter 1. In verses 1 to 12, Peter reminds these followers of Jesus, that God has a divine plan for their lives, that there's a spiritual inheritance for them that's in heaven, and that no matter what happens to them, they're good. Their spiritual inheritance is kept in heaven, God has a plan for their life, and so no matter if the bottom falls out or not, God's got them. And can I remind you, that's the exact same promise that is yours if you're a follower of Jesus for 2017. I don't know what this next year holds for you or for me. I don't know what sort of feelings you have about what's gonna happen in your next year. But verses one to 12 remind us that God's for us and not against us, that our inheritance is in heaven. Verses 13 to 21, Peter instructs us that we can have minds that are set on the grace of God and we can allow the, the mindset of the Bible to be able to call us to be a holy people. And then in verses 22 to 25, where we left off a few months ago, Peter tells us that we can allow the living and abiding word to create spiritual life within us. And the effect of that is that that spiritual life, that living and abiding word, has tangible effects in how we treat one another. And what happens in chapter two, it's a little bit of an unfortunate chapter break. There weren't chapters in the Bible, in your copy of the Bible, until about the 13th century. And sometimes those chapter breaks come at inconvenient moments where it sort of breaks up the thought. And what's happening is chapter two is really the implication of chapter one, or the thought just keeps on moving, which is essentially this, that an exile-minded people not only are different, but an exile-minded people treat one another differently. That Having an exile mindset not only relates to how do I see the culture and how do I think about myself, but it also relates to how do I think about you and how do we think about one another together. And what Peter is arguing for here is a word-saturated people, a group of people who have embraced this beautiful living and abiding word who now are seeing the beautiful effects of it in their culture within the body of Christ. 
Look at verse 22 of 1 Peter 1. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Why? Verse 23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So what Peter is saying is this living and abiding word of God has come to you, not just individually, but as a people, and as a result, it creates a, a different kind of culture. So in, in, in 1 Peter 2, he's talking about this countercultural exile community, not just what we're to be like individually, but what we are to be like collectively. And in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2, he specifically addresses the characteristics of this exile community. Since they've been born again by an imperishable seed, since the word of God remains forever, then what should characterize this word-saturated people? In other words, in the midst of all the pressures on the outside of the church, what should the aroma of the inside of the church be? So I'm gonna go through these characteristics, and as we do this, I want you to listen and think about how this relates to your connection with this particular group of people gathered in this room. There's four marks of a word-saturated community. Mark number one, godly relationships. Verse one says, so put away all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and all slander. There are sin issues that are not to be a part of the culture of the exile community. There's supposed to be something different about the followers of Jesus and how they relate to one another. And as the pressure on the outside of the church becomes greater and greater, then the culture on the inside of the church becomes more and more critical. As the pressure gets greater in culture, the, the, the culture of your home, of your marriage, of your small group, of your relationships, of your Bible study, that culture becomes more and more important and more and more distinct. So let me unpack these five particular sin issues and then come back to what it means to put them away. Now I'm gonna go through these five sin issues and let me just encourage you not to do something. Do not listen to these five things for someone else. Okay, I got it. Don't listen to it for me, okay? Don't listen for your spouse. Resist the temptation to think, mmm, I hope she's listening. Or, mmm, that was good, right? Did you hear that point? So can we all just decide, I'm gonna listen for me. In fact, can you say that? I'm gonna listen for me. Say it again. I'm gonna listen for me. Okay, here we go. Malice, what's malice? You know what malice is? Malice is a laundry list, all-encompassing term for evil and wickedness. It relates to relationships that are marked by hostility and trouble. A person who's filled with malice, they just kind of bring trouble wherever they go. They, they change jobs and they bring trouble. They change small groups, they bring trouble. Sometimes they even change churches and they bring trouble. Where they go, trouble just comes. And 
A lot of times, people who struggle with, with malice, what's, what's happening is they have all of these reasons why they think everyone else is to blame, and yet trouble has followed them. They just sort of create conflict wherever they go. So if you're this person that, if you look at your life, and honestly, if you just kind of assess, and you could just see trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble after trouble, I just maybe want to put a thought into your head. Maybe it's you. The idea is that relationships suffer when people are trying to create conflict. This, this malice comes out of a, a relentless self-centeredness. And what Peter says is that this exile community should be characterized by so many things, but it shouldn't be characterized by malice. Like you don't, you don't walk into church with a chip on your shoulder. You don't walk in, into your small group waiting for somebody to offend you. You don't walk into a marriage relationship or, or some other kind of close, intimate relationship with this sort of thing in your soul, like I'm gonna get what's coming to me and you're gonna make me happy. If that's the reality of what's going on, something's terribly wrong. Next, deceit. In other words, other words you could use would be deception, guile. This is in reference to the kind of talk that is dishonest or conniving or intends harm for another person. It's the kind of speech that's intended to make the other person wonder, what did that mean? So that if they ask you, what did that mean? You could say, oh, nothing, I didn't mean anything by it, when the reality is you sure did. That kind of relationship, that kind of conversation style, that kind of sinful behavior erodes trust. Good relationships are difficult when you have to continually nuance. What do people mean by that? Emojis haven't solved all of this. I'm gonna listen for me. How you doing in that? Because here comes the next one, hypocrisy. Know any hypocrites? Allegedly, the church is filled with them. The word means having two faces, having two tongues. It means to be two people, depending on the situation or the crowd that you're in. The word means to act in one way when you're with one group of people, to act in another way when you're, no, when you're with another group of people. It's, it's the difference between some of you about how you're going to act for the next hour and a half here and how you act at work. Or how you act in your Bible study and what you, how you talk about things in your fraternity or when you're out with the guys. The word means not only to act in a different way with different groups of people, but it also means to give people the impression of one motive when there really is another. It just means that we're not, we're, we're not transparent. It means we're not legit, we're not 100 with people. It means that we're pretending who we really want people to think about who we really are. When behind the veil, there's somebody else. Let me tell you, man, if you're trying to live this way, it's exhausting to keep up with that. To try and figure out 
how to position it just so, so people have the right impression of you. And as we'll see in a moment, hypocrisy just doesn't fit with the gospel. Envy is the next one. Envy is a particularly sinister evil. It's not the same as jealousy. Do you know the difference? Jealousy is when you see what somebody else has something and you want what they have. That's jealousy. You have it, I'd, I'd like, I want that. It's like covetousness. Envy's worse. Envy is he has it and I don't want it, but I don't want him to have it. Envy is I see what happened to them and I don't want what they got. I don't want that award. I don't want that accolade. I don't want that promotion, but it just burns me that that guy got it. Long way from rejoicing with those who rejoice. The sinful sort of self-centered competition can so creep into the church and relationships. And then finally, slander. Remember, I'm gonna listen for me. Slander is speech that's intended to harm a person's name or reputation. You know what's interesting about this word? It's the same word that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2 and chapter 3 in how the world persecutes Christians. The world slanders them. And what Peter is saying is, let's not let the kind of actions that the world does to Christians in their persecution be the kind of thing that happens inside the house of God. Let's not have husbands and wives slandering each other, brothers and sisters slandering each other, or friends and single adults slandering people within their small group. Instead, let's let the church be the kind of place where relationships are not destroyed, but rather they're built up. Instead of verbally assaulting a person's reputation, we're gonna embrace 1 Corinthians 13, we're gonna believe the best. Love believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. So do you see how, how radically different these, these sin issues are from the kind of culture that Peter intends for the church to have? These are the kind of relationship sins that are to be gotten rid of. In fact, that's what he says. Put away these things. That's the New Testament's way, one of the favorite ways of New Testament writers to indicate, look, this is not who you are anymore. Stop acting in a way that doesn't fit with your present life. This is the old you. I wanted this morning to illustrate this concept in a way that you would remember all week. So in my closet, I have a particular piece of clothing that represents the old me. This is an awesome jacket. <laughs> this is my very tight varsity jacket from 1989, from Kalamazoo Christian High School with a varsity letter. And my wife said, didn't you have medals? I was like, oh yeah, baby, I had medals. So I, uh, that's, just, that's just too much for today, so yeah. It's my name, Mark, this varsity 2X, two times right there. Back in the day, man, these, these, this was the thing to wear. This was expensive back, it was 150 bucks back then. That's like, I don't know, $3,000 today or something, right? No, it's about $300. But listen, if I came to church today and wore this, 
And I walked in the door, I was like, hey, Jermaine, what's up, man? How we doing, man? I walked in and had this jacket on. You'd be like, what? He's been on vacation too long. What's going on, right? My kids would say, dad, dad, no, dad, take it off, right? Just, no, maybe, maybe you got a, gave someone a gift. Maybe your mom or your dad a gift. And it, let's say it's your dad, it's a sweater. It just didn't fit. It's just too small. And he put it on. You're like, dad, no, don't, don't be wearing that. I'll get you another size, man. Sorry. And this, is, this, is, this is the old me, right? To, to wear this around would just be living back in the 80s. And what Paul is saying, look, this is the old you. All of the stuff of your past, all the things the way you used to be, it's time to take these things. And in another part of the New Testament, it says to take the cloak off and just to cast it aside. And what, Paul, what Peter is saying here is essentially that, look, malice and deceit and hypocrisy, slander and envy, these are the things that characterize the old you. And a word-saturated culture is not to be marked by them anymore. So when you're tempted to put on the old garments of your old self, when you're tempted to put on the old varsity jacket of your past, I just want you to be reminded that's not who you are anymore. And the body of Christ is supposed to be a group of people that they're different They've been marked by the word, and they've put away the things that have characterized their old life. They do that, secondly, because there is this longing for the word. The second mark of this word-saturated community is essentially this, this longing for the word. It's interesting that he picked up the theme of the word of God in verse 23, and 24, and 25, then he, he mentions these sin issues, and then he comes back to the word. Do you know why he does that? I think the reason he does that is that a word-centered heart and a word-saturated mind and a word-loving people are necessarily going to treat one another differently. In other words, we're where malice and guile and hypocrisy and envy and slander live, I would suggest it's probably not an environment or a culture where the word of God is, in, is saturating the minds and hearts of the people. I know this to be true in my own life. I've seen it over and over. When the word is not sufficiently present in my life or in my thinking, when I start to allow the narrative of my own desires to drive my actions, to drive my attitudes, to drive my words, it isn't too long until wicked things start dominating my mind, my heart, and my mouth. My narrative is a scary narrative. So if you want to put off malice and guile, hypocrisy and slander, one of the sure remedies is to be sure that the word of God is sufficiently present in your life. I mean, look what Psalm 119 says. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Any young men in here who want to remain pure? Any young men want to have a pure mind and heart? Here's a surefire way for it not to happen. Just don't read the Bible. Don't memorize it. Don't get the word of God in your mind and heart. Just simply allow the passions of your heart and the decadence of the culture to come at you, and you will go after all the wrong things. You have to fight against that culture by... Knowing the word. 
Psalm 119 also says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It also says, let my cry come before you, O Lord, give me understanding according to your word. So friends, there is a direct correlation between the presence of the word and the kind of attitudes and actions that fit with God's heart. As we begin the year, it's a really good time to stop and just consider what is your orientation in terms of your desire as it relates to the word? What is that like? Peter describes our orientation, our passion, as that of a newborn infant. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. Why does he use newborn infants? It's not because he's calling them spiritually immature. No, he's using that metaphor to indicate the kind of relentless, dependent passion that a newborn infant has when it's hungry. A baby will not be consoled when hunger sets in. The piercing cry of a hungry infant is impossible to compete with. I know. (laughs) A lot of noises that happen in a sanctuary, but a cry of an infant that's hungry, it's over. Just let somebody feed that baby. And Peter calls believers to be the kind of people who are relentless to have the word in their life. They crave it. They long for it. Does that describe you? Does that describe this longing? If if not, maybe this morning one of the action steps is to say, God, give me a hunger for your word. Or as Psalm 86, 11 says, teach me your way, O Lord. Unite my heart to fear your name. To long for the word is to long for God himself. When you linger over the word, when you mark and underline your Bible, when you memorize, you are are embracing and ingesting the very words of God. It is God who is speaking to you. It is the true, unadulterated, and life-changing revelation of God to mankind. So let me just ask, as we start out the new year, What is your attitude and passion like for the word today? Do you have a desire to read the word so that it transforms you? Do you make time for it? Do you prioritize your personal intake of the word? Beyond that, do you have people with whom you talk about the word? Do you have a a small group of people or a discipleship group or some brothers or sisters that you meet with and say, here's what I'm learning in the word because as you talk about it and they speak into it, it massages it into your soul. You need to not only have a time where you're reading the word, where other people are speaking God's word into you. And trust me, you have time. You have time. The issue is not the amount of time that you have. The issue is the prioritization of your time and the other things that we're craving. When you come on Sundays, do you come leaning in to the singing? Do you come leaning in to the teaching of God's word? Do you come ready? What Peter is arguing for here is a group of people who long for the word, and they long for it because they will, third here, grow into salvation. He says that by it you may grow up into salvation. 
To grow up into salvation, Peter's using the idea of salvation in the same way that I think he's using it in verse five of chapter one, where he says that we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not meaning a point in time when you're saved, when you came to faith in Christ, but meaning this, this broader perspective of what it means to be a genuine believer And the fact that this living and abiding word that is within you is going to create some kind of spiritual growth. Because the Bible, by its nature, is not meant to be studied just for the facts and the information that are within it, but instead is meant to be studied in order for it to transform your life. The Bible was not meant to be studied in order to learn information, but rather the Bible was to be studied in order to learn information that transforms the heart. So even as you're listening now, one of the questions you ought to be asking yourself the entire time as I'm even talking is this, what are the application points? What is God saying? How does this message relate to my life and what are the takeaways for me? Back in the 1980s, there was a board game called Bible Trivia. How many of you remember this game? Like in my area, Western Michigan, this, this was, I mean, this was, like crazy popular. For those of you who have no idea what you did, there were various Bible trivia questions and you moved up the rainbow uh, three, three, three times, like the Trinity, and, and then you moved up the cross and then you got a, a bonus point if you answered the question. And then you went to the dove and if you answered the dove, you, you, you won Bible trivia. And winning Bible trivia was a really big deal. Like, like you arrived. The, the problem though is that the Bible Notice the tagline, the game where trivia is not trivial. It's kind of cheesy, but so what, what, it, what, it, what it, essentially what it means is this. That the Bible wasn't meant to be studied for trivia alone. That the Bible was meant to be studied in order to transform our hearts and our lives, for there to be some level of spiritual growth that is happening. For us to be changed from one degree of glory to another, Peter is saying is that we're to grow up through the word in a manner that fits with what salvation is all about. The meaning here is connected to the entire purpose for why salvation came to you in the first place. The idea is that this imperishable seed, this living word of God, creates a supernatural growth pattern that's normal. So let me make it very practical. If you look back on 2016 and you can't see any way that you tangibly grew spiritually, I wanna lovingly just tell you that something is either seriously wrong about your pattern of what it means to follow Jesus or it may be, it may be, that you just understand the trivia about the Bible but you've never really trusted Christ. If you look back on 2016 and you can't see specific ways in which you've grown, that ought to be a really scary scenario for you. In fact, I think assurance, like knowing that you're a legit follower of Jesus, doesn't primarily come from some date in the front of your Bible. I think assurance comes by the sins you know that no longer hold you. And in fact, if you're struggling with assurance, here's my advice. Don't ask your mom about when you received Christ. Don't go back and ask your Bible study leader. Here's what you do. Find a sin, apply the word, and see victory come over it, and you will begin to assure your heart, ah, I am legitimately a follower of Jesus. 
You see, growth, growth is what God intends because of this, this imperishable seed that is within us. And a word-saturated community is a group of people who are characterized by supernatural and tangible growth that fits with salvation. Finally, this word-saturated community is marked by a satisfaction in the Lord. He says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the final characteristic that we have relates to the previous statement about salvation, but now it approaches it from a vantage point of a person's satisfaction in the Lord. A word-saturated community is a group of people who have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter likely here is referring to Psalm 34 in verse 8. He quotes it directly in 1 Peter chapter 3 where it says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And coming to faith in Christ and considering all of what God has done for us through Jesus, believers have therefore tasted and seen of the Lord's goodness. And it is this satisfaction in God's work that they are reminded of as they read the word. So your time in the word is not just to read and learn, your time in the word is to read so you can be re-satisfied in the Lord. So you can realize, oh, this is what's really valuable. This is what's really important. This is what's really lovely. This is how I should think. So that when you close your Bible and you walk out and there's temptations in the world and you think, no, that's not lovely, this is lovely. That's not attractive, this is attractive. That's not the right thing to say, this is the right thing to say. That's not the right thought to think, this is the right thought to think. And you have tasted and seen of the goodness of the Lord. And this satisfaction of God in the life of a believer is the way in which then they also not only pursue righteousness, but also endure when things get difficult. Because for an exile, they have tasted and seen of the Lord's goodness. They know the promises of the word. They are sure that their inheritance is in heaven. They know that the Bible says that everything works according to God's good plan for their life. And therefore, when things come that are hard, you live as an exile, not because it's commanded, but because it's actually better. The radical transformation of the gospel means that you have changed your tastes the things that you love are different, and digesting the word reaffirms how right those new tastes and those new affections are, which is why if you remove yourself from the regular teaching of the word, you remove your mind and heart from the regular reading of the word, it will not be long until you begin to develop an appetite for all the wrong things. To be a Christian is to be an exile. But to think like an exile, you have to know the Bible. So, a few steps forward. If you're not a follower of Jesus, here's what I'd love for you to do. I'd love for you to find somebody who is and say, hey, can we meet for about three weeks and read through the Gospel of John together? I've got some questions and I'd love to know more about what the Gospel of John says about your Savior. Ask them to help you understand what it really means to be a follower of Jesus.
If you're a Christian, this is a great time of year to think through what What's my plan for reading through the Bible this year? What's my plan to study the Bible? Every year on our blog, we post some excellent Bible reading plans. I encourage you to think about the various ways that you could intentionally read and study the Bible. Maybe for the month of January, maybe there's something you want to give up that's going to create time, and you're going to put the Bible where this other thing took time in your life. For others of you, 2017 needs to be the year where you make the step and join this church, where you identify that these are my people, this is my community. For some of you, it may mean you need to take a step and become part of a small group where you can study the word of God with other people, to be able to have other people speak God's truth into your heart. And then finally, if there was like just one step, the one thing that I would want you to do, it would be this. Eric mentioned at the beginning of the service, we have these, these fighter verses, verses that we put in the bulletin for you. There's a, a sheet like this out in the, the Welcome Center. And my encouragement to you would be this. You want to see exponential spiritual growth in your life in 2017? Just try memorizing the Bible. Try just one verse a week. Is there guile, hypocrisy, slander in your home, Dad? Here's a suggestion. Start memorizing the Bible together. There's a list of all the verses that you can memorize. There's even a, an, an app you can download. All sorts of resources, including family devotional guides and things of that sort. The idea is that together as a church, we're memor memorizing the same verse throughout the week. We're focusing on the same thought. We're massaging it into our thinking. The point is this. In the midst of a culture that's becoming increasingly hostile to Christianity, Peter writes to believers who've always been exiles about the kind of culture that needs to be a part of the inside of the church, the inside of your home, the inside of your small group. And the central thing inside that particular culture is the word. And the simple application from 1 Peter 2 this morning is this. What are you gonna do in 2017 to be sure that you are regularly tasting and seeking that the Lord is good. If you want malice and slander, if you want guile and deceit and hypocrisy to be gone, then you need to have the word wash over you to remind you who you are. Because after all, to be a Christian is to be in exile. But to be a Christian means that you've been born again by the beautiful, living, and abiding word of God. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, pray that you would help us to take one step in regards to putting off the old banner of living and putting on the beautiful, redemptive, and transformative work of the word in our lives. Help us to remove the ways that we used to be and by the power of the gospel through the word, see minds and hearts and mouths changed. And would you let our church be the kind of place, a sanctuary that's filled with love, grace, mercy, kindness. Help us to be the kind of people who follow hard after you. We pray this in Jesus' name.